Good morning. Welcome. Uh, welcome uh, to Grace Church. My name is John Farthing, and today it is my privilege to welcome you to worship with us at a church called Grace. As Jeff Foxworthy might put it, here's your sign. <laughs> we call ourselves Grace Church. Do we really mean it? Or are we perhaps met here under false pretenses? Should we perhaps change the name of our church? What about Works Church? Or Boast Church? <laughs> or maybe I Earn Church? <laughs> Grace means pure gift, not a reward, not an achievement but a gift that comes to us freely, unearned, unmerited, undeserved, unconditional. Now I know, and you know, that the whole notion of receiving something as a totally free gift is countercultural to say the least, is controversial in America today, and that is seeped over into American religious life. There are lots of varieties of bargain basement religion out there telling us what we can and must do, what we've got to offer to God in exchange for salvation, what we've got to do to be worthy to be accepted by God. So on the eve of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, here at 2828 Crossover, maybe this is a perfect time and place to grapple with the question, what's grace got to do with it? From Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. To you who were spiritually dead all the time that you drifted on the stream of this world's ideas of living and obeyed its unseen ruler who is still operating in those who do not respond to the truth of God, to you Christ has given life. We all lived like that in the past and followed the impulses and imaginations of the evil nature being, in fact, under the wrath of God by nature, like everybody else. But even though we were dead in our sins, God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love he had for us, gave us life together with Christ. It is, remember, by grace and not by achievement that you're saved. And he has lifted us right out of the old life to take our place with him 
with Christ in the heavens. Thus he shows for all time the tremendous generosity of grace and kindness he has expressed toward us in Christ Jesus. It has nothing, it was nothing you could or did achieve. It was God's gift to you. No one can take pride in earning the love of God. The fact is that when that what we are, we owe to the hand of God upon us. We're born afresh in Christ and born to do those good deeds which God planned for us to do. And then from the gospel of our Lord, the gospel of John, chapter 15, Jesus says, not just to them, but to us, it is not that you have chosen me, but it is I who have chosen you. I have appointed you to go and bear fruit that will be lasting, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. This I command you, love one another. My sisters and brothers, this is for us today. The word of the Lord for the people of God. Amen. On the cold winter morning of December the 9th, 1959, a juvenile delinquent in Forestville, Maryland, was hit by a truck. He was rushed unconscious and near death to the emergency room at Prince George's General Hospital with severe brain injuries. The neurosurgeons did all they could for him, but they knew it wouldn't be enough. The boy's mom and dad were virtually forbidden to hope that he would live. But 11 days later, he began to emerge from the coma, and soon it was clear not just that he had survived a hideous neurological injury, but that something even greater, even more miraculous, had, heard, had occurred during those nine days. He came back from the dead in more ways than one, not just physically, but spiritually, because he went into the coma a hardened sinner, but came out a born-again Christian, a very immature born-again Christian, but a born-again Christian all the same. He ended up not in jail, where he seemed to be headed, but at Duke University, and eventually he became a professor of religion and a minister of the gospel. Down through the decades since December the 9th, 1959, folks have sometimes asked him, can you tell me the time and the place when you were saved? And he always answers, oh yes. I can tell you the place, it was at Prince George's General Hospital. And I can tell you the time, it was sometime between December the 9th and December the 20th, 1959, 
while I was lying there in a coma. That young fellow's name was Johnny Lee Farthing. His story is mine. Let me ask you, what did Johnny Farthing have to do? What did Johnny Farthing do to win or earn or deserve or contribute to the new life that came to him in that cold December 58 years ago? On a scale of one to a trillion, zero. What's grace got to do with it? In a word, everything. As some of you know, I'm a retired teacher. Old habits die hard. So I just couldn't resist to give you a pop quiz this morning. But don't panic. I grade on the curve. And besides that, it's a fill-in-the-blanks quiz, and I know that you know all the right answers. For instance, you don't get something, bingo, see, you got it, Uh, or this, there's no such thing as a free lunch, yes, so far so good. Uh, How about this one? You get what you... (laughs) Well, I think I heard somebody say deserve. And maybe somebody else said pay for. Yes, yes, yes. Both of those. You'll get full credit for either one of those answers. Here's the motto of popular culture in America. You just got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Bingo. And, and, or maybe this is the motto. Maybe this is the supreme uh, summary, distillation of our conventional wisdom. God helps those who see. You knew the answers to all those questions, didn't you? We know that you don't get something for nothing. We know there's no such thing as a free lunch. We know that you got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. We know that the only ones God helps are those who help themselves. We all know that, don't we? But what if every one of those things we think we know is a lie from the pits of hell? You don't get something for nothing. The witness of Scripture and of the Protestant reformers is that the most important thing of all, eternal life with God, is something that you get in no other way. You get it literally for nothing. Sola gratia, as the reformers would say in Latin, sola gratia, by grace alone. Maybe in this crazy fallen world of ours, maybe it's true that there's no such thing as a free lunch, but the table that God spreads for us 
is available on, on, on no other condition. It's a free lunch. It's free for you. It's free for one. It's free for all. Oh, I know conventional wisdom says that you've got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Did you notice the opening line from the second chapter of Ephesians? While you were dead? Huh? I thought about Lazarus. When Lazarus of Bethany had been dead and in the tomb for three days, how hard was he pulling on his bootstraps when the Lord of life stood at the mouth of his tomb and cried out, Lazarus, come forth. Uh, we all know that God helps those who help themselves. But what about those of us who are so locked in the prison of sin, so locked in the prison of self, that we can't even want to help ourselves move toward God? Do we really think that God is just a cheerleader for our moral self-help project? What if it's just the other way around? What if the very desire to move toward God is itself a gift? St. Augustine in his confessions in the late, early 4th century says something like, um, He pictures God as saying to the soul, Thou couldst not have sought me had I not already found thee. Did you hear the words of Jesus a moment ago? It's not you who've chosen me. That's not where the initiative lies. It is I who have chosen you. What if sola gratia, what if by grace alone means that God helps those who know that they cannot help themselves, who therefore put their trust not in themselves, but in God. The world into which Martin Luther was born was nothing if not confident of what human beings could do for themselves. And, you know, there were lots of reasons for human self-confidence in the late 15th, early 16th century. The Renaissance, a rebirth of civilization after the collapse that enveloped Europe in the late Middle Ages. The Renaissance was in full swing, producing brilliant works of art and science and literature that left human beings feeling pretty much in awe of their godlike potential. It's no surprise that the outlook of the Renaissance came to be known as humanism. It's important not to misunderstand what that word entails. Renaissance humanism was not a form of atheism. Humanism was promoted by deeply committed Christians like Erasmus and Thomas More who would not be ashamed to call themselves 
both humanists and Christians because they said human beings bear the image of God. And human beings in their creativity reflect and glorify and share in the life of their creator. Humanity is a good thing. We're not ashamed to call ourselves humanists. People like Erasmus and Thomas More took God very seriously. Indeed, they spent their lives doing the painstaking research that went into producing a pure text of the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament. The Christian world is forever in their debt. If you have a Bible, or if you read the Bible on your smartphone, you are indebted to the Renaissance humanists. We would not have a reliable copy of the Hebrew or Greek scriptures had it not been for them. Think of the cultural condition in Europe in the late 15th, early 16th century. What amazing things people were doing. And on top of all that, Christopher Columbus had just discovered a brand new world. No wonder people were feeling their oats. No wonder they were feeling self-confident. The spirit of the age was an exhilarating optimism about what human beings could do if only they tried hard enough. All well and good to that point. But by 1517, 500 years ago this month, that same human confidence had bled into the teachings of the church. The doctrine of salvation that the young Martin Luther internalized during his years as a student of theology had a slogan, and it goes like this, to those who do their very best, God will not deny his grace. You see that where that puts the initiative. On the eve of the Reformation, grace had become little more than a reward for those who can and must try really hard to earn it. But when the young Luther and millions of other earnest Christians all over Europe tried to be good enough to deserve God's favor, all they got for their efforts was a terrified conscience. Martin Luther is a prime example of that syndrome. Luther was haunted by questions about whether he had done enough, whether his works were good enough, whether he had satisfied all of God's demands. His father confessor told him, well, Brother Martin, all you need to do is to confess all your sins and receive absolution and everything will be okay. And Luther tried to put that into effect. But his conscience was so sensitive he kept coming up with picky little things to confess. Somebody once said that listening to Martin Luther confess his sins was like being stoned to death with marshmallows. 
He would confess his sins to his father confessor. And then he'd go out about his business and he'd remember, oh my gosh, I forgot one. And he'd run back. Oh, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. What have you done, Brother Martin? Well, I stepped on the cat's tail this morning and I was not sufficiently contrite about the suffering of this poor creature. His confessor finally said to him, Brother Martin, for God's sake, please go find yourself a real sin and commit it and then come with something real to confess. Luther found no peace, no comfort, no joy in the spiritual strategy that his church and the spirit of his times recommended. Once when Luther was caught in a terrific thunderstorm and thought he was about to die, all he could think to do was to try to strike a bargain with God. He would become a first-class, full-time, totally sold-out Christian in exchange for God's mercy. Uh, as the thunder was striking, uh, the lightning was striking all around him, he cried out, St. Anne, help me, I'll become a monk. And he survived. And he did become a monk, a very zealous, earnest monk. But that didn't help at all. Indeed, Luther's anxiety became worse as his insight into the contrast between God's holiness and his own unworthiness grew deeper and ever more terrifying. He found that he could never be good enough. He could never try hard enough to find peace. His problem, you see, was not laziness, but the very opposite. He became a spiritual workaholic, trapped on a religious treadmill. He was like the man who said, the hurrieder I go, the behinder I get. The harder he worked, the more anxious and uncertain and insecure he became. That's where Luther found himself, and that's where God found Luther in October 1517. But while he was getting ready to deliver a series of lectures on the letters of St. Paul in the New Testament, he made a breakthrough that revolutionized his life and the life of the world. Luther discovered sola gratia, the good news of grace alone. He learned that his salvation did not rest in his own frail, trembling hands, but rather in the hands of God, the one who loved him enough to die for him. That's where he found peace. He learned to trust not his own goodness, but Christ's. And at that point, all heaven broke loose in his heart. In that moment, he received Christ and all the gifts that Christ brings with him, joy and peace and hope and courage to face the future. In trying to be good enough and do good enough, 
that had all turned him into little more than a quivering mass of religious uncertainty and fear. But when he learned that his destiny rests in God's hands, that salvation comes to him not as something he had to achieve, but as God's free gift, everything changed. He found freedom from his anxiety, freedom from his terror, and confidence that would enable him to stand before the most powerful politician of his time, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, unafraid. The emperor just wanted Luther to shut up so that there could be an end to the religious controversies that were tearing his empire apart. And Luther, when he stood before the emperor, knew that his life was on the line. But Luther stuck his head into the jaws of that lion and declared without fear, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. Can you feel how revolutionary that is? And it all happened by grace alone. Sola gratia, grace alone, destroys every manipulative, transactional way of approaching God. In this fallen world, you know, we're master con artists, aren't we? We try to con each other. We try to manipulate each other to get what we want. We relate to people on the basis of a quid pro quo. You scratch my back, and I'll scratch yours. Let's make a deal. We're masters, shall I say. We're masters of the art of the deal. And then we try to use that same approach when we're dealing with a true and living God. We desperately want to con God. We want to manipulate God, or at least strike a bargain with God so that we can get out of him what we want, a meaningful life, an eternal life. But sola gratia means that the sovereign God will not go along with our strategy. We are saved by grace alone through faith, and all of that is not of yourselves. It is God's gift. Well, does that mean that Christians just sit back and do nothing and wait for God to do it all? Does grace alone reduce us to passivity? You might think that would have happened, but it didn't work out that way at all in the 16th century. Luther says that one of the free gifts that we receive after we're justified by grace alone is that grace makes us God's partners, God's co-workers, and God is anything but passive. The effect of grace is not to make us passive, but to energize and activate and mobilize us. We still do good works. Indeed, 
we do better works because now the good works that we do are not tainted or not contaminated by the sinful, selfish attempt to get something out of God. Grace alone takes the question, what's in it for me, off the table so that now we can do really good works. Luther says that the Christian just breaks out in good works, kind of like the measles. We still do good works, but now we do them freely, spontaneously, out of gratitude, not out of fear, because now we know that any good thing we do is the fruit, not the root, of our salvation. Luther insists, and I'm quoting, we're not against good works. The Christian just breaks out in good works. What we're against is a false understanding of the place of good works in the Christian life. Grace alone means that now we know our good works are not the cause but the result of our justification before God. As John Ray put it several Sundays ago, it's not about what we've got to do. Now it's all about what we get to do. It's not you may, must, now it is you may. Get involved in what God is doing. It's all about what we get to do. Because now we know that everything we do is the effect of God's initiative, the effect of God's redeeming work through grace in our lives. In the 16th century, Protestants who knew that they didn't have to work their way into heaven that they were accepted freely apart from their own good works by grace alone were anything but lazy, anything but passive. They went forth to reclaim the world for Christ, not so that they would be saved from God's righteous judgment, but rather because they knew they already had been. Five centuries later, in October of 2017, it strikes me that many of the Protestant churches that emerged from Luther's discovery of grace alone have fallen back into the same kind of nervous, frantic religion that produced such anxiety in Luther's heart. We more or less assume, don't we, that it's really all up to us? We all passed the quiz, didn't we? If we just try hard enough, then God will be proud of us. He'll love us and bless us. And just as that kind of theology turned Luther into a religious workaholic, we too buy in on the notion that being a Christian is all about doing the right things and trying to be good enough to win God's favor God's blessing. TV preachers assure us that if we're not prospering, it must be because we haven't done the right things to win God's blessings. 
And if they go on to talk about divine healing at all, you're likely to hear the message that if you don't get well, it must be because you have not believed firmly enough, you have not prayed hard enough. You see what that does? It puts the monkey on our backs again so that we end up like the young Luther working our fingers to the bone trying to meet God's impossible demands so that he will love us and accept us and bless us. It's as if we still really haven't heard the good news of a healing, redeeming love that comes to us with no strings attached. It's as if we didn't hear a word that Jesus was saying when he said, I have not come for the moral and spiritual and religious overachievers. I've come for the sinners. You know, Jesus extended his welcome to liars and cheats and prostitutes. Ah, but that hasn't seeped in, has it? Because we know how unworthy we are. And we know that he knows it too. So we assume that Jesus couldn't possibly be there for us with all our imperfections and unworthiness. When Jesus calls us to his table, he doesn't put a big sign up in front of it saying only the, wel- the worthy are welcome here. But it's still hard for us to imagine that Jesus would welcome us to share in his life because like the young Luther, we know both how holy Jesus is and how weak and frail we are. So we think it's not safe to get too close to Jesus because we know we haven't tried hard enough to do our very best so that he would be happy to welcome us to his table. But Luther got over that. 500 years later, it's high time for you and me to get over it too. I long ago lost count of the the, the anxious Christians I've known who hesitate to partake of the Lord's Supper because they're so sure that they just aren't good enough. They're not worthy. Of course, they're right. They're not good enough. Neither are you. Neither am I. But Jesus, who invites us to his table, is more than good enough. And that's all we really need to know. So the bottom line is that we can trust in his goodness, not our own, and then serve God by serving others, not out of necessity, not out of duty, not out of responsibility, not out of fear, but out of joy and thanksgiving for the privilege of participating with Jesus in the healing of a broken world, not out of some nagging suspicion that he won't love us unless we do. 
What's grace got to do with it? What's grace got to do with it? Repeat after me. Everything. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Freely bestowed on all who believe. You who are longing to see his face. Will you this moment his grace receive? Christ, the source of grace, awaits us here. And he invites us one and all. Will you come? Thank you for being here. Amen.